I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Well, scientists from the National Institutes of Health are getting royalty payments from pharmaceutical companies and other private companies. Uh, it's a practice that's happened for decades. Uh, no accusations of any wrongdoing other than are we doing this the wrong way. Now there's a new push to open the book so we can see who's getting paid for what and where those conflicts of interest might be. Really pleased to have joining us on the program today, Adam Angievsky, uh, who is the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com, a nonprofit that investigates government spending at every level. Uh, and uh, we are a group that believes in transparency and shining light is the, uh, the best disinfectant. And uh, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Well, it's great to be on the program, Boyd. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, wonderful. Well, let's dive into this uh, because this is one of those areas where, again, as long as we've got transparency, we can work it through. But kind of give us how this came to your attention uh, and what is it actually that you're looking at? Well, we had noticed that back all the way back in 2005, so 17 years ago, that's the last time tra- there was transparency on the Institute of on the National Institutes of Health (NIH) on their royalty database. Here's what it is. It is payments from third parties, think pharmaceutical companies, back into the agency at NIH and at 1,700 scientists. And so the payments enrich the agency and its scientists. Every single one of those payments could be a conflict of interest. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act request for the database. This was eight months ago. NIH refused to even acknowledge it. They never responded. So we sued them with Judicial Watch in federal court. And the case moved quickly. We won an unjudicially mandated production. NIH admitted to holding 3,000 pages. Nobody knew the size and scope of this practice. Turns out we're able to estimate now it's $350 million that flowed back into the agency from, think, Big Pharma mm. over the course of the last 10 years. And its leaders were getting the royalties as well, which calls into question the whole program of giving royalties. Because, Boyd, as you know, every year NIH doles out $32 billion in grants. That's taxpayer money to the entire industry. Now we know that every 10 years, hundreds of millions of dollars is flowing back the other way, enriching the scientists, its leadership, and NIH itself. Uh so many thoughts, so many thoughts. <laughs> uh, so, so as we look at this, uh, and again, I think for – for the average listener, for most of us sitting here, just that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't smell right. That doesn't taste right, uh, probably because it's not right. Uh, so how, how do we get to that 
kind of transparency where where we can at least know, okay, this this pharmaceutical company is giving royalties back to this person who works at the National Institute of Health. Uh, they maybe have a little bit of an incentive to you know push that particular procedure or that particular remedy for something. Uh, how do we actually get to that point? So the only way to get to that point, Boyd, it's an excellent question, is quite simply to be able to follow the money. So I can tell you on top line numbers that $350 million over 10 years was the gross amount of the royalty payments. But here's the thing. And I, and I can also tell you that there's 1,700 scientists' names in the database. But what I can't tell you is how much each individual scientist, including Fauci and the former head of NIH, Francis Collins, received. I can count the number of royalty payments, but they blacked out, they redacted the amount of the payment. And furthermore, they blacked out and redacted the third-party payer. So if it's a pharmaceutical company, I cannot tell you the name. We don't know who paid $350 million worth of royalty payments. Wow. All right. Now, we, we know that this was the subject of a congressional hearing this month. Uh, did we learn anything from this, or was this more uh, not a hearing, uh, more just a speaking from uh, members of Congress sitting on the dais? Well, so 36 hours after our report launched at OpenTheBooks.com, it led to five minutes with the acting director, Lawrence Tabak, in the hot seat, five minutes of questioning about these royalty payments. And finally, at minute four, he confessed that every single one of those payments could have the appearance of a conflict of interest. Exactly what we're saying. So we've called on the National Institutes of Health to open the books to show us exactly who's paying how much to each of the scientists. It is the only fair way to debate this issue. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the what are the next steps? Uh, what what happens next in terms of actually getting the books open uh, so we can actually see what's going on, how the money's flowing? As you said, following the money usually gets us to the right space in terms of what is actually going on in terms of influence peddling or, uh, you know, the wealthy and the well-connected getting more wealthy and more well-connected through these kinds of processes. Exactly. So we're going back into court. Our lawyers are judicial watch and we're going back in to unredact all the redactions. And and that should be a knockdown drag out fight because NIH is certainly acting like they have a lot to hide in the in the congressional hearing. The acting director at Lawrence Tabak, he said that there's nothing to be concerned about because we have firewalls. (laughs) I mean, I'm not buying it. Three hundred and fifty million dollars over 10 years enriching the agency who has a vested interest in keeping hundreds of millions of dollars flowing. And, and they dole out $32 billion a year in grants. I want to see who's paying the royalties. We already have captured who's getting the grants. I want to put the two databases together. That's right. Yeah, that is the ultimate. And if, if we can connect those dots, uh, the magic of transparency will take place. And we can do it. Our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com, we are forensic auditors. We are data scientists. Let me tell you, even to get the top-line numbers – off of these horribly redacted production from the National Institutes of Health, took our data scientists. If we didn't employ data scientists, I wouldn't even have this story mm. for you here today, Boyd. Wow. Wow. That is uh, that is just stunning. Uh, and again, this is one of those, uh, we started the show today talking about trust in institutions of government. And this is one of those things that just undermines trust, uh, where there just seems to be 
uh, this kind of collusion. Uh, and again, we don't know who did what. Uh, many of those should be, you know, could be absolutely straight up, right on. But we we have to know, and in the absence of that, that you, trust continues to erode. Do you have time for an example? Please. Great. So back in 2005, as I mentioned, the Associated Press got the whole unredacted database so they could follow the money. And right off the top, they exposed a scandal, and it was Dr. Anthony Fauci. In 2005, they discovered he received $45,000 worth of royalty payments for an experimental age drug a drug that was funded with $36 million of U.S. taxpayer money. Fauci's the head of an institute at NIH, obviously very powerful, can direct funding. His name's on the patent. He's receiving royalties as the U.S. taxpayer funded this thing for $36 million. Mm. And even after, it was, uh, even after he was receiving royalties, taxpayer money continued to flow to continue to enhance the drug. So Fauci upfront admitted that it was a conflict of interest, and he said he would donate. Trust me, I'll donate the payments, the royalty payments to charity. That was the answer. Wow, that uh, that is stunning. And so, where do we go from here? What should we be watching for uh, in the coming months? So, we were able to forecast three hundred fifty million over a ten-year period because. NIH has produced only 1,200 pages out of the 3,000 pages. We're getting 300 a month. And on that basis, we're able to forecast the largesse. Every single month, we get new production, 300 new pages. And we're going to be able to, to expose a new investigation on that production every month. So stay tuned. These things, we've put together some of these preliminary numbers on what we can figure out. It is absolutely stunning what's going on in this program and it's all funded by your tax dollars at NIH. It's a federal agency. They're running this program. It's absolutely stunning. Wow. Adam Angievsky is the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. This is an important conversation in transparency uh, and what happens in this. Uh, Adam, we'll have you back as this continues to emerge. But thanks for joining us today and giving, this, giving us the update. Thank you, Boyd. All right. Uh, that is a man. That is a head scratcher for me. Uh, that is one of those things that undermines trust. If you have someone who is over an agency directing billions of dollars in research to pharmaceutical companies and then is getting royalties back uh, on those same drugs and medications, that's a trust problem. We got to get it right. All right. We'll step aside for top of the hour news. Much more to come. Hour number two of Inside Sources coming up on KSL News Radio. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Of course, President Biden's Asia tour continues today in Japan, where they're launching an economic plan, uh, really a, a plan to counter Beijing, what's happening in China. And while the administration wants the trip to send a strong message to China, uh, is the president's message coming off uh, as confusion rather than clarity? Uh, this is one of those where I thought the president had some great moments uh, in Asia. I thought he was particularly strong in South Korea and talking about some of the alliances there, some of the business uh, opportunities that were going to emerge in terms of the economics and the partnerships that would be done there. Uh, similarly, in Japan, they're announcing today uh, a 12-nation an Indo-Pacific framework, really important work there. Uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the ever-present China question as it relates to Taiwan and the president's comments there uh, had to be walked back a little bit. Uh, and so, again, I think the president did some good and important things uh, on this trip. 
that were important for these uh, crucial allies in the region uh, and across the world, as you look at Japan and South Korea. And so I thought the president did very well there. And I also uh, think there was some confusion created or the story gets shifted uh, when the president goes off the cuff a little bit and ends up having to walk some things back or his team has to come and, and do some clarifying or, or counter messaging to that. So we're going to break all of that down, good, bad and ugly. And again, it doesn't matter to me whether you agree with President Biden or you disagree with President Biden. You like the policy. You hate the policy. Uh, we're going to go through the process because the process matters in so many things, how we think about things and making sure that we do that every day is such an important thing to me on this program is we don't have to agree on everything, but let's at least agree to go through the process of things and assess what went right, what went wrong, what could have been done better. And whether you're a liberal progressive and a Democrat or whether you're a conservative, uh, someone on the right of the Republican Party uh, or anywhere in between, to me, it's more important that we get to the principles and policies of all of this. And so we can be, as we often like to say, equal opportunity offenders uh, for anyone and everyone, because we have to get to the nuance of all of this. Uh, the nuance is the hard work and heavy lifting. We're going to talk about that coming up in the next segment. Uh, but let's start with with President Biden uh, today again in Japan. He announced that the U.S. was working for this uh, Indo-Pacific framework. The United States and Japan, together with 11 other nations, will be launching the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. This framework is a commitment to working with our close friends and partners from the region on challenges that matter most to ensuring economic competitiveness in the 21st century. By improving security and trust in the digital economy, protecting workers, strengthening supply chains, and tackling corruption that robs nations of their ability to serve their citizens. So I do think this Indo-Pacific framework is is very important as we look at these uh relationships in the region and what that means in terms of economic competitiveness, uh, in improving security and trust, protecting workers, uh, strengthening the supply chains. We know that is an important part of it and tackling this thing of corruption. Uh, I thought the president really laid all of that out super well. Uh, he also emphasized the importance strictly on the U.S.-Japan alliance. A strong Japan and a strong U.S.-Japan alliance is a force for good in the region. I support the peace and stability that's going to uh, continue and we hope to increase across the Taiwan Straits, promote freedom of navigation in the East and South China Seas, and to deter the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And so as you look at that uh, in, in terms of obviously the, the North Korea uh, issue came up there, there's been a lot of saber rattling uh, coming out of North Korea, that they would test some missiles or some weapons uh, during the course of the president's travels there in the region has not happened. So it appears to be more saber rattling and rhetoric than it does any kind of substance. So that's an interesting thing to to see how that plays out. Uh, and then, of course, the president was asked uh, about the United States policy uh, towards Taiwan. And at first, at first, the president said nothing has changed. Our policy toward Taiwan is not Taiwan has not changed at all. We remain committed to supporting the peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits and ensuring that there's no unilateral change to the status quo. So the status quo really has been the policy of the United States for a very long time as it relates to Taiwan. 
And as long as the status quo can be maintained, then things are okay. Uh, Of course, the uh, Chinese president, uh, Xi, has uh, talked about the Taiwan issue, the Taiwan issue being solved uh, peacefully or forcefully. Uh, clearly, he has a, an agenda there, and I think the president was trying to swat that away just a little bit. So when the president was asked a follow-up question specifically, if he would be willing to respond militarily if China attacked Taiwan or moved in there, here's what he said. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made. That's a commitment we made. We are not. Look, here's the situation. We agree with the one China policy. We signed on to it and all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that that it can be taken by force is taken by force is just not it's just not appropriate It'll dislocate the entire region and so that's where i think the, the president got a little off message things got a little bit confusing uh, in terms of the one china policy uh, versus the additional agreements uh, in terms of ways that the united states would help uh, taiwan uh, to be able to defend themselves uh, and uh, the president's words in terms of uh, being willing to move in militarily uh, if an attack occurred from China into Taiwan. And uh, the administration, uh, the staff, was very swift uh, to respond to the president's comments in terms of this is not changing the status quo, this is not changing the policy. And so, again, whether you like the policy or don't like the policy, the confusion created and the the messaging mishap is what ends up carrying the day. And and that has been the challenge for the administration is to stay on message. Uh, the president was also asked uh, about if a recession was going to happen in the United States. And uh, he said that it was not inevitable. Uh, and so I think it was uh, interesting that even while the president is traveling abroad, he's still trying to make sure the messaging as it relates to the home front is moving forward. And that is a good thing. Uh, I applaud the president for staying on message in terms of what he wants to do and what he wants the American people to do back here at home. And as we've been talking throughout the course of the program today, uh, the American people continue to spend even in spite of inflation. Uh, So there are some things happening in the economy. Employment continues to be low. Uh, And now all the other dots have to be connected in terms of policy. Uh, We we just uh, spoke, of course, Uh, about the monetary policy, the rise in interest rate and what that does, government spending, which uh, continues to fuel inflation uh, and how that moves forward. So the the president's juggling a lot of balls, a lot of plates are spinning uh, and keeping them all on uh, is the real key task for the president and for his staff, by the way, uh, to make sure that the message remains the message and they don't get distracted uh, by other things that are interesting, but far less important to our security and our economic prosperity. We'll step aside for bottom of the hour news. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that issue of nuance and discernment. Is there any place left in the world for that? We'll talk about it coming up next. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought... There are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. 
I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.